Welcome to White Collar Briefly, a Perkins Coie mini-pod. Delivered in short doses, this mini-podcast features informal, on-topic discussions with in-house experts, outside counsel, and other thought leaders on a wide array of cutting-edge and practical white-collar and compliance topics. Visit PerkinsCoie.com for more information on our nationally ranked white-collar and investigations practice. On this episode of White Collar Briefly, Perkins partners Marcus Funk and Chelsea Kerfman interview Sherber Panag, firm co-founder and head of the Compliance and Investigations Practice at the law offices of Panag and Babu in Delhi, India. Sherber discusses recent trends in enforcement of corruption-related cases, as well as how changes to India's anti-corruption laws over the past few years are being implemented. Sherber also cautions about the importance of involving local counsel early on in any India-based investigation, in light of India's trial-based approach to enforcement and view toward legal privileges. The views expressed on this podcast do not necessarily reflect the views of Perkins Coie LLP and should not be considered legal advice. This is Chelsea Kerfman. I'm a partner in the White Collar and Investigations Group at Perkins Coie, and I'm joined today by Marcus Funk, who is also a Perkins White Collar partner, and our guest, Sherber Panag, who's joining us from India. Nice to have you today, Sherber. Thank you so much, Chelsea and Marcus. Before we jump in kind of to our conversation about investigations in India and and trends you're seeing there, can you give us your introduction? I know you've got your own firm that we've worked with, but tell us a little bit about what you do and your background. Sure. I'm the managing partner and also founder of a boutique law firm that effectively specializes entirely in business crimes. So we pretty much do everything that Marcus and you do in terms of investigations, building compliance programs, defending companies. And over the years, we've really built our expertise in helping foreign companies navigate the complex web of compliance challenges in India, defend them in the cases of enforcement action, and sort of beef up their governance mechanism. So that's that's a short piece of what we do. Great. And I know, you know, we've worked with you on a couple of FCPA matters in the past, and I, I know you have a lot of experience working with U.S. counsel on that piece. You know, one of the things we wanted to cover today is... What's you know what has changed in India from our end at least it seems like there's a lot going on in investigations and enforcement and, and anti-corruption in India and so we're kind of looking for you today to give us some highlights of what you've seen changing in the last couple of years uh, and maybe the place to start with that is to talk about the the in, India's anti-corruption laws that I know were amended in 2018 and, and 2019 so if you could give us some background on you know what changed uh, and what you're seeing on and what effect that's been having. That's a great question, Chelsea. And I think first and foremost, if you if you take a look at law enforcement in India as far as bribery and corruption has, is concerned, it's definitely been on the upswing. Prosecution statistics anywhere in the world aren't ideal, and and one could make the same argument for India that we that given the the, the vast bribery risks that we have, the way we still rank in for example, the Transparency International's Corruption Perception Index and the other risks that companies face and individuals face in India from a bribery perspective, that prosecution isn't ideal, but it's not non-existent either. I think that's the, the first key takeaway that it's definitely been on the rise. The second piece is that law enforcement authorities in India have much better coordination with their foreign counterparts now, whether it's in matters of extradition, mutual legal assistance, cooperation, or just an old boys club of sharing information. 
So the FCPA cases of the early 2000s or were, were ones where it was a U.S. action and potentially stayed a U.S. action. And today an FCPA case is a U.S. action and an Indian action. And both of them sort of go on very different standards of investigations and in terms of how our legal systems are structured. So they've definitely been on the upswing. And and outside that space, we've had legislative developments, as you rightly mentioned, in terms of amendments to our substantive criminal law statute that deals with corruption called the Prevention of Corruption Act. Before I get into the Prevention of Corruption Act, what I'd really like to say is that Nothing that the Prevention of Corruption Act has brought in as part of the amendments are earth-shattering, new, changed prosecution focus. In fact, they always existed, but now we just have more substantive law clarity. For example, we now have formal provisions that deal with bribe givers. Earlier as well, bribe givers were, were prosecuted, but as an abetment offense to those who were actually taking the bribes or the bribe receiver per se, or the government official concerned. But the key takeaway has been that there's been a larger focus drawn onto corporations. Corporate criminal liability in India was new, and now companies are at the focus. There's a separate offense created for companies, and we've also recognized a substantive compliance defense, which is that if a company has a compliance program, it can get credit. Earlier, like I said, we we used to use this as a mechanism of defense to showcase a responsible corporation, but now we have it on statute. So I think that's been the real change of, of having it not just in the spirit of the law, but also having it in the letter of the law. Yeah. And, and you mentioned, I want to follow up on one thing you said earlier, which is that, you know, in the early 2000s, most, at least in the FCPA space, most of these investigations were sort of US driven. And now you're seeing more where you've got Indian authorities investigating either simultaneously or jointly with US authorities, and that that kind of can maybe cause some issues because the way that they proceed differs between the US and India. So can you give us some examples of of some of those differences and procedures that that, companies may want to be aware of? Absolutely, Chelsea. I think, again, excellent question. You know, the starting point of cooperation with the United States with regards to the DOJ or the SEC in terms of full cooperation credit and the fact that a criminal investigation could be resolved by way of a non-prosecution agreement, a deferred prosecution agreement, a declination. We don't have a mechanism like that. For us, we go to trial and we go to trial, you come out acquitted or you come out convicted. So that really changes the burden. So on one side, you're giving information to US authorities And in India, that same information is prosecutable evidence against you. So you're running trial in one country and you're running a settlement process in the other country. And it becomes harder for counsel such as yourselves and us to sort of come together and make, you know, come to a common ground where we don't end up getting, you know, our client convicted in India. And at the same point of time, we aren't being seen as not cooperating with the US authorities. So I think that's the... That's the real starting point of of a fundamental difference. The second piece that really comes in is with regards to the expectation that an internal investigation and the company's compliance programs and mechanisms that it has taken to mitigate really go to the heart of what US law enforcement would expect. And on the counter side in India, it's given that it's a trial scenario, it sort of becomes more of a position of saying, 
at best, we're going to view that as mitigating circumstances when we are going to consider a sentence. So again, the fundamental changes, but given that the law has changed in India now, there's a growing focus to try and carve out the attention to say, these are the individuals who were responsible. These are the ones you should be looking at. The company's actions do not speak to individual actions. And I think here again, we somehow marry in with US law enforcement expectations, given Sally Yates's memo and, and subsequently in the Trump administration, similar sentiments being echoed, tell us who the individuals are. So we are poles apart, but then both law enforcement structures get married also on certain common points, such as who were the individuals responsible. And Shabir, by the way, it's just great to see you. For our listeners, Shabir, as, as Chelsea alluded to at the beginning, is just a fantastic attorney. And his firm is, is just, does just great work. And it's a real pleasure to see you again. You mentioned the, the sort of affirmative compliance defense. And I wanted to ask you, really, from the perspective of companies, both of my questions are going to be from the perspective of companies thinking about their compliance picture, thinking about their internal investigations. Have you seen companies come to you and say, hey, I've, I see there's a compliance defense we really need to get our compliance house in order. What what have you seen, uh, if anything, in terms of the impact of these changes in the rules? And then I'll ask you a little bit about sort of internal investigation trends. Marcus, that's, again, an excellent question. And let me start with the problem and then try and come to the solution. So the heart of the problem is that while the compliance defense has been recognized by statute, the government of India was required to prescribe what they would see and consider as the minimum threshold of compliance. And as of 2020, we don't have any guidance on this. So we are still waiting. Publications we all made in 2018 to, to talk about the new legislation spoke of these rules will get prescribed. And unfortunately, they're, they're yet to be prescribed. That being said, I feel they're going to follow very similarly to the guidance that has that has come. It's, it's going to be very similarly aligned to the principles and guidance that the DOJ and the SEC have given in the past on what constitutes a good compliance program. We have had a lot of clients and companies come over and say, okay, now that we have this compliance defense, what do you make of it? And here, Marcus, I'd say that a U.S. multinational company's global compliance program that sort of ticks the boxes and has a genuine focus on compliance would effectively, in my view, would just slip fit in like a glove. It's there. There wouldn't really be any any real requirement to to sort of do something radically different. And and the approaches of whether it's risk assessments, etc., will ensure that the Indian element will get captured and compliance would get necessarily Indianized. But what I think has been the biggest influence of the affirmative compliance defense is that it's helped compliance officers, chief global chief compliance officers traveling to India, come in and say, guys, it's no longer a US law. It's an Indian law requirement as well. And like I was trying to explain in the beginning, earlier it was a complex web of an abetment defense and corporate criminal liability being recognized, and now it's on statute books. And I think that has really helped the compliance conversation move forward for subsidiaries of global companies, as well as Indian companies, when it comes to why we need to have strong governance and ethics. 
We certainly can empathize with your experience of writing things that don't necessarily come in fruition right away. We certainly see it in the supply chain, an area that I've, I've written about a lot on, on supply chain and forced labor, trafficking, child labor. The enforcement piece in that case has lagged. Here we're talking about guidance that is, that is lagging. So I, I appreciate how we sometimes spend a lot of time thinking about things, but the government doesn't necessarily always back us up in the way that we expect. When you think about the companies that have come to you and have had sort of inquiries about, okay, there's this new law, what do we do? From the U.S. perspective, you know, and, and we've talked about this privately before, you know, we think about, okay, multinationals versus domestic Indian companies and whether there's a difference in approach, a difference in how they view compliance and their obligations. Have you seen any difference in how, in other words, when you think about the people who've come to you said, hey, what is the story with this new compliance uh, defense? Is there a difference when multinationals come to you versus domestic companies? And, and this is a little bit of, you know, also speaking from, again, from a non-Indian expertise perspective. How do you view that in, in the compliance area as well as just in investigations generally about how domestic companies differ from multinationals? Important question, important conversation. And let me try and come to it with two or three different limbs. I think from the overall FCPA perspective and how bribery sort of impacts the cost of doing business, India is in a very different space than a lot of other countries and wouldn't fall into the into the, the generalization that one could have for certain other countries of how bribes happen there and how local businesses view it. I'm not going to go out on a limb and speak for all local businesses, but for most Indian companies, Bribery as an ethical challenge is is as devastating, as shocking, and as painful as it is for a global multinational company. And there is an equal desire to do business the right way and do business the ethical way. In fact, some Indian companies who don't have global aspirations, who are not listed on U.S. stock exchanges or other stock, other countries that would have similar laws to the FCPA, have followed marquee compliance programs over the years. You know, the Tata Group, for one, the Mahindras, Forbes Marshall. These are these are companies that way before the advent of a more uniform set of compliance provisions were already ahead of the curve. So that's the first point I wanted to make. So the second point being. There is a growing desire for Indian companies as well, which is driven by two primary factors. A, it helps their image towards doing business and doing business ethically. So you'll find a lot more Indian companies, members of supply chains to want to come up and have some kind of a baseline compliance program so that they're attractive, not just to domestic business, but international business as well. And secondly, Marcus, I would say that on ground, the setup as far as India is concerned in terms of where bribes are paid or not paid has significantly changed. The old narrative of everything in India needs, you need to pay a bribe for anything and everything is something I vehemently disagree with. And I'd bank my professional reputation to say, you don't need to pay a bribe to do business in India in, in all spheres of, of work. And, you know, there are certain sectors that are complex. I wouldn't say it's easy, but it's not impossible. But where I think the slip between the cup and the lip really is, is a different view towards doing business in India. I find it's, it's a common sight to find multinational companies not have a compliance officer for India, not have a legal resource. You know, there's somebody back in 
the administration department or human resources who's trying to provide advocacy for an environmental clearance or a fire safety clearance that they wouldn't elsewhere. And it's just a differing standard at times that kicks in in terms of how doing business in India is viewed by a global company versus how they'd consider doing business elsewhere in in Europe or North America for that matter. And I think somewhere as it's becoming easier to do business in India, there's also a change of thinking when it comes to global companies. And there's also a change in the ground reality in terms of where bribes are being sought. And the available resources, the amount of e-governance mechanisms they are to make to make payments, which earlier involved government interaction. So there's a massive change coming up there, a change in thinking for multinational companies, a change in thinking for domestic companies, and also a change in the ground situation. All in all, I'd say it's a positive sign. Does it mean that companies can let down their guard and everything is fine and India is sort of almost at par with the Scandinavian country? No, I don't think we're there. Is the challenge significantly easier from how it would be viewed in the 90s? Definitely. Kind of moving to the second part of what I wanted to talk about just briefly is you walked us through some of the changes in the substantive bribery, anti-bribery law, and also some of the enforcement trends. And a similar question, again, from, from a sort of a company internal perspective, have you seen a change in the way companies approach internal investigations as a result of these domestic changes in the law? Because again, sometimes, you know, and we, we certainly see it, international companies go to a particular country, whether that's India or some other country, they focus all about the FCPA and they focus about potential disclosures. But to the U.S. authorities, they don't as often think about disclosures to the domestic authorities and perhaps for good reason in, in, in many jurisdictions. But from your perspective, these changes in the Indian internal laws have and enforcement trends, have they spurred a change in how companies, whether they're domestic or internationals, approach internal investigations within India? Absolutely, Marcus. I think today an internal investigation that's being done into allegations that are sort of centric to, to India cannot ignore Indian law enforcement, cannot ignore Indian law. I think that era of disjoint legal strategy of let's focus on the FCPA, let's not focus on local law, is more or less over as far as India is concerned. There are several reasons for that, barring just the substantive law piece. Our local law enforcement is pretty aggressive as well. And given the element of trial, we have a significant push towards arrests that happen in such cases, dawn raids that happen. And of late, we are seeing a trend where bail in white-collar crime cases is becoming extremely difficult. This started a few years back when we had a, a very famous te telecom corruption scandal called the 2G case. And ever since then, it's becoming progressively more difficult to seek bail in white-collar crime cases. It's, not, it's very different from the US system where if you could post bail, you'll get it. We did have, I would say, and I would still support the jurisprudence that says Bail is the is the right and jail is the exception. But somehow right now we are in a partly a market sentiment, a political sentiment and a public sentiment that those who indulge in white collar crimes need to be punished. So arrests become, you know, a critical component as to as while internal investigations are running as to, to plan both in terms of something that could realistically happen and as well as something that needs to be defended. Second comes up with dawn rates. 
once Indian law enforcement kicks in with the element of wanting to investigate, the chance that they are going to raid a company's premises are almost it's it's almost binary. So if there is an investigation, there will be a there will be a dawn raid. All of which have deep impacts on the internal investigation. And what it translates for professionals like you and me is that we need to pick up pace of internal investigations. You know, we can't have those age-old investigations of we'll kick the can down the road seven, eight months and we're going to spend, you know, a couple of weeks preserving evidence and then we'll we'll figure out when you know, the US team can come down to India and how we can sort of make it happen. Given the pace of how Indian law enforcement may react, it sort of has made a a very strong case of condensing investigation time, or at least having some a subset of a quick internal investigation and the long one, a quick internal investigation to be able to be ready for a dawn raid, ready for arrests, ready for playing out the court strategy and a long drawn internal investigation to clarify the facts. So I think that's the that's the first key piece that comes out. The second trend, Marcus, which again, I would say, unfortunately, is an Indian trend, is we have a plethora of investigative agencies that sort of come onto the same case. It could be the Serious Frauds Investigative Office if there are company law issues, which inevitably happen because if it's a bribery case, there is some degree of forgery that happened, some degree of books and records issues that came into being. So the Serious Frauds Investigative Office can become can get tipped off. And now auditors in India have an affirmative obligation to report beyond a particular threshold margin, report cases of fraud. And fraud includes if the books have gotten cooked to to generate X amount of cash, well, that will also go into the genre of fraud. Then you have the anti-corruption agencies, and then you have uh, an entity called the Enforcement Directorate that looks into money laundering. So unlike a U.S. case that would have the DOJ as centrally coordinating all these assets and bringing a case together that could be books and records, that could be bribery, that could be racketeering and money laundering, we are going to have four different trials or three different trials, one by the SFIO, one by the CBI, which is the Central Bureau of Investigation that looks into bribery, and one by the Enforcement Directorate. And then you may also have further localized trials and each of them are do not necessarily speak to each other as well as we'd hope they'd be talking to each other. So effectively, you end up in four different investigations within the same country. And which of them may get triggered when is a key challenge. And outside the, the law enforcement nexus, and I think this is something we should discuss, is the growing advent of an informed whistleblower, which we are seeing as either if they've decided to come to the company, great. If they've decided to go to law enforcement, depends which law enforcement they've gone to. If they've gone to yours, which you'll find, I think, both in terms of data that the SEC's Office of the Whistleblower has published, as well as my own experience on ground that you will you have a lot of Indian nationals who know about the SEC's Office of the Whistleblower and provisions of the Dodd-Frank Act. So if they've gone to the U.S. authorities, they're probably in the long drawn process of of talking to US prosecutors. But if they've gone to Indian authorities, then the action is quick. So then there's a timing differential that again kicks in. So these are the three or four factors that have sort of changed the dynamic in, in and driven by relatively aggressive Indian law enforcement to 
not just see an internal investigation as something being done for U.S. law purposes, but something that's necessary for under Indian law as well. And let me ask you, just before I turn over the microphone to Chelsea, and I really appreciate you uh, giving us these really interesting answers, and it, and it makes me wonder, given how Indian law enforcement approaches investigations, their investigations, one of the things that, that obviously benefit of self-disclosing in the U.S. is generally, not exclusively, but generally, you're not going to find the DOJ or the FBI, I should say, conducting a search or doing a, a dawn raid after you've self-disclosed unless they think either the company or you're somehow not being open and honest with them. And so one of the motivations for self-disclosing is to avoid those types of intrusions that can be very disruptive and brand damaging and so forth. So the last question I had on this, uh, first of all, is, is there a similar advantage in India? In other words, if you self-disclose, do you reduce the chances of a dawn raid? And then secondly, and this may be a question we have to get back to, but you know, in the U.S., we don't have international double jeopardy. So if the Indian authorities are investigating and prosecuting a particular case, the U.S. authorities can still do it. In the U.K., for example, there is double international double jeopardy. So if the U.S. authorities prosecute a case, you can't prosecute that same case in the U.K. So there is some thinking about, you know, essentially sequencing. What is the Indian law's perspective on double jeopardy? In other words, if you were prosecuted for the same conduct by the same people at the same time overseas, can you still be prosecuted in India for it? Marcus, that's a double-loaded philosophical question of where Indian law is sort of going to fall as far as international double jeopardy is concerned. So let me let me take your question in two parts. The first part, if we don't really go with an affirmative obligation to self-disclose under Indian law, we sort of fall back on the constitutional right to say that we don't have any duty to self-incriminate ourselves. And given that there is no cooperation credit and we don't really have a nuanced settlement process, it isn't really the, the preferred mechanism of going about a defense strategy for a bribery case. Now, segueing into international double jeopardy, that's unique position. The, the theoretical answer to it would have been that if the same set of facts resulted in a prosecution and the same style of action a case could be made for not prosecuting in India. Again, that would be entirely at the discretion of the court and the court the court would at best be guided by this as a mechanism to not, you know, not take on trial, but they wouldn't be obligated to accept it. It wouldn't be it wouldn't be a de facto position. But in most cases what ends up happening is that the Indian courts take a view to say they went after the US entity for an indirect offense that happened in India through one of their subsidiaries. They haven't punished the subsidiary. And though the individuals who were potentially actively involved in the bribery scheme did not get come into the crosshairs of, of the United States, unless you have an exception. So the, the prosecution in India would continue. And the Louis Berger case is, is very interesting on this point because you had Louis Berger settle with US authorities and then face prosecution, including of former employees in India, some of whom were arrested. So on a nuanced position, Indian law enforcement is going to look at finding the bribe taker, who in all likelihood is not going to come within the FCPA crosshairs. And 
then look at the other individuals who were responsible and go after them and potentially look at impleding the Indian subsidiary unless they can find cogent reasons to say that they got instructions from the U.S. and take the view that the U.S. action was specific to the U.S. entity through their subsidiaries and hence there is a nuanced difference there. And also to, to sort of add to that, it's not a very difficult argument for them. They're not going to get questioned, at least for now. And the trend of international double jeopardy is something that, you know, Indian law is yet to really fall on. It's yet to be adjudicated by our constitutional courts in the context of corporate crime. So we've, we've got some time to go on that. Um, and I want to follow up on another question about the self-disclosure piece, because I, I understand that is not the practice in India, but it, it is in the U.S., right? And so for us, you know, a big benefit to the self-disclosure, you know, practices in the U.S. is that if you come in early, right up front, as soon as you know something, you have a, a greater outcome in the end. But given that India has, you know, you have prosecutors that are a little more aggressive and you have this trial posture and that you're seeing more, you know, prosecutions. If you're a multinational company addressing an FCPA issue in India, how do you balance that need to be early in the US versus not, you know, disclosing too much before you know the facts in India? Excellent question, Chelsea, and a, and a tough one at that. Marcus would relate to this, that in, in Germany, a lot of the defense lawyers say that 95% of their fee is to answer the, you know, is to is to take a decision on deciding whether you take a guilty or a non-guilty plea and 5% is for everything else. And that's pretty much what happens in India. This decision becomes complex on multiple levels, especially where one cannot easily carve out and say who are the individuals, was the action rogue, were these ladies and gentlemen acting on their own volition, was it a violation of company policy and can co the company be ring-fenced out of it? If for some reason it's not possible, I think that's where it becomes important to sort of time the disclosure decision at both places. Because like I mentioned previously, you have the auditor's obligation to come in and report instances of fraud, which sort of comes at the closure of the books. And in the US, you could potentially consider, consider the self-disclosure at any point of time through the, through the year. And Indian authorities don't like reading about Indian cases in the U.S. press. So it's, it's sort of a mix of multiple factors there. But ultimately, I would say to a large extent, it really falls down onto, onto commercial mathematics. How big are the operations of the Indian subsidiary? Is it, were the actions that involved criminal misconduct limited to a few individuals? Did they not take approvals? Did they, was this done as something that was an under the radar exercise? And can self-disclosure in the United States be simultaneously achieved by the Indian subsidiary being seen as a victim of criminal misconduct where, where these folks acted out of their own personal volition? If, if this happens, a common strategy can be achieved. If that does not happen and the facts are more intertwined and intermingled, it's a very, very difficult decision as to how do you make it fall in a way that interests can be protected in both. And, and ultimately, it, it ends up becoming a, a liability calculation of where are we going to get hit harder? So it, it seems 
pretty clear to me, at least, that it would, you know, if you're a U.S. company doing an investigation, there's a real benefit of having someone like yourself or, you know, Indian counsel involved early in the process to help with some of these decisions, especially on the disclosure side. But, you know, in investigations more broadly, I know one of the things that we've, we discussed with one with a matter where we worked together previously was a question of privilege. You know, are there other issues that US counsel should be aware of when they're doing an investigation that touches India, where, where they may need local counsel involved early on? Yes, Chelsea, two real factors come in on privilege in India. One are the jurisprudence of attorney-client privilege in India is fairly a small body of law and not as well tested as one would like. And further, when it comes down to attorney-client privilege applying to companies, it's an even narrower body of law. So one isn't able to sort of navigate this with a significant amount of judicial precedent. But a few standalone factors kick in. One, as you know, we don't, foreign lawyers aren't allowed to practice law in, in India except on what they call a fly-in, fly-out basis, where the advice is limited to elements of the, of the jurisdiction in which they're licensed to practice. So if you're coming in and looking at a set of facts from a U.S. law perspective, that would be permissible. But at the same point of time, such information, such facts would, would not constitute privileged information that Indian law enforcement would be obligated to respect. So that's where Indian counsel comes into play. And unfortunately, in a judgment that I must disagree with, a view has been taken by our constitutional courts that in-house counsel in India do not provide legal privilege. And the view taken is that when they go in-house, they are no longer practicing law as an advocate. And it's fairly regressive, but... It is unfortunately the position where it is. Where I have to give this answer in no way without sounding like an ambulance chaser, you unfortunately need Indian counsel to proceed with an internal investigation in in India. Um, and I think that's a good practice for for anyone in general, just to make sure that you're not you know missing something important during the course of that investigation. I know we have about ten minutes left, and I want to make sure I can follow up on something you addressed earlier, which is that. Uh, when you were talking about corruption in India and and how you know you've seen a change that it's not you don't have to pay bribes all the time in every aspect of business. I'm curious if you if you can give some more detail on you know if there are certain touch points or certain places where bribery still is a, a more serious concern or a risk for companies that they should be monitoring. Chelsea, that's a great question, and the fundamental position begins with saying that. Bribery risks in India do exist. It's how well you plan for them. There are a few common areas where these risks really come up regularly, and one being in permissions, approvals, licenses. We've unfortunately have, and this has been, there have been efforts by our governments over the years to sort of reduce the number of permissions, approvals, licenses, but it's still a fairly daunting number. And this is where government interaction happens. This is where government discretion comes into play on whether to give grant a permission or not grant a permission. And hence the risks and exposure to bribery kick in. So in terms of a corporate response to this, I think the first and foremost element is planning. You know, it's you have your house in order. It's much easier to respond. When you're applying for a permission approval license, if somebody has something due on 30th September and wakes up on 29th September, they're walking into a bribery trap as opposed to planning 
adequately in advance, having common things like standardized lists saying, listing out what all we need to comply with, who needs to do what, do we need a legal firm, do we need an accounting firm, do we need a consultant to help us, what's the amount of, you know, to and fro, what are the documents needed? So many times one finds companies walking into very simple issues that the number of documents needed are fairly standard. There are no magical documents, nobody can ask you to invent documents, but there will be certain forms and formats. Something needs to be printed on something called green-sized legal paper. And I've, whenever I'm dealing with US clients, I've literally reached the, the stage of saying, find any green paper, print, print the biggest possible size you have, send it over to me and we'll, we'll, we'll cut it out and make it happen. Or we'll send you the green-sized legal paper from India via FedEx and you can use it. You have certain bureaucratic elements of which side of the page what needs to get printed on, but those are fairly foreseeable elements and can be planned for. And if one plans in advance and avoids these pitfalls with time on your hand, that's a significant strategic advantage in avoiding bribes. And doing simple things, you don't need complex elements of dealing with it. It's 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 the most simple stuff. It's simple checklists, it's simple calendar reminders to say this is due. We need to get started six months in advance. The other element, Chelsea, that kicks in is, is the whole space of gifts, meals and entertainment. And this is one of those unique places where the FCPA is broader and sort of, you know, says that what's reasonable, appropriate, you know, has cultural relevance and, and cult culturally resonates, while Indian law is much more prescriptive. Every Indian government official, whether working for a government company or what we call a public sector undertaking in India, or working for a government department or, or service, has something called conduct rules. And those conduct rules, based on their seniority and grade, prescribe what level or what quantum of gifts, uh, meals, entertainment they can they can receive. And sometimes the threshold can be as low as 50 rupees, which is less than a dollar and goes up to about, you know, 350, 400 US dollars. And this is again another common pitfall because you have a lot of, you know, FCPA policies that have a gift addendum and say gifts up to $50 are fine and it's, it's, minimum in value, it doesn't matter. But at $50, you could have broken a significant number of Indian laws in terms of in terms of uh, service conduct rules that, that sort of have a bribery component to them while doing so. So it becomes important to look into, into this fine print as a matter of strategy to avoid getting into common bribery pitfalls. And I think the overall strategy is avoidance and having your house in order. It's it's effectively the glass you know the glass house theory. If you, you you know those who are in in glass houses don't throw stones outside, and strong compliance trans filings that have happened on time, taxes that are paid on time, penalties that are paid. If something doesn't happen, you know you didn't get something on thirtieth September. Paying a penalty is far better than going down the bribery route. The bribery route, yes, may be more efficient, may be expeditious, may even save, a, may save some jobs because of the guy who slept on the wheel to not get that permission. But the overall liability matrix becomes significantly more. So I think the avoidance piece of the strategy and planning become, become critical here. Yeah, and I think we have heard that in investigations that we've done in India, particularly with like the the permits and licensing and approvals that you were talking about that, you know, if you have all of the forms and all of the required information, 
the, the worst thing that the official could potentially do is just delay it, right? But if you come in with the wrong paperwork, then all of a sudden now they have a reason to, you know, to they have some leverage over you and that creates that risk of bribery. And so that rings very true with what we have seen too in our work. I think the the last question I have for you today, before I'll, I'll let Marcus chime in if he has anything else he wants to ask, but you know, you did talk about whistleblowers earlier, and this is consistent with our experience as well, that it seems like there is a, a pretty broad understanding in India of the US laws regarding whistleblowing and of that being an avenue to raise complaints. Have you seen, you know, an, either a an increase in the number of whistleblowers coming out of India or or trends in the types of things that are being reported? Interesting question. Definitely an increase in the number of whistleblowers. I would say that this is because we've seen a bunch of corporate scandals in India that have come to the forefront because of whistleblowers. And while we may not have great laws as far as whistleblower protection in India is concerned, of late law enforcement, our authorities, including our market regulators like the SEBI, which is our equivalent of the SEC, has been coming down fairly hard on companies to say, you had this whistleblower complaint, why didn't you act on it? The other genre is that, yes, there is knowledge of, you know, US laws, but the whistleblowing tool also becomes, to, to some extent, it's also a cry for help that we are seeing in cases of mismanagement, where somebody doesn't get along with their boss, doesn't get along with, you know, doesn't like the middle seat in the van that they're getting, doesn't like the coffee machine, or has genuine grievances in terms of how they're being treated, and find that the only method in which they're getting attention to redress a, a grievance is by adding some component to say that, hey, if you don't do it, I'm going to go to the DOJ. And then all of a sudden, you know, right from the from the global CEO downwards, everybody gets, you know, gets involved and tries to address something that could have been addressed at a more local level. So it's it's sort of a mix between all elements of genuine whistleblowers, knowledge of US laws, and also a cry for help. The bigger challenge for companies is in the in the in the genre of those that are the cry for help and and the generic ones and more what for want of a better word I'd say human resource related complaints. It's how do you manage them and how do you not be how do you not just ignore them and how do you how do you separate the wheat from the chaff as far as what could be a bribery allegation, what could be an element of serious fraud, and what's you know what are issues that needed to be handled with with a hand on the shoulder approach or needed human resources to look into it more proactively. I think that's the growing challenge that a lot of us are dealing with when reading whistleblower complaints today. Yeah, I think you're spot on with that. It's knowing how to scale the, you know, the response based on the nature of the complaint and and you know, maybe they don't all need to be treated the same way. That's a it's a very good point. Well, Marcus, I, I want to pause if you have any follow-up questions here. Otherwise, we can kind of conclude when you're ready. Yeah, no, I just want to, Sherbir, just thank you for for your time and for your insights, which which are, as always, considerable. And hope you're staying safe and healthy and look forward to seeing you in person one of these days real soon. Absolutely, Marcus. And thank you and Chelsea for for having me over on your podcast today. It was great fun talking to you and getting to see you all and hearing your voices. Stay safe and see you guys soon. This concludes this episode of White Collar Briefly. 
please visit whitecollarbriefly.com where you can subscribe to our blog and find additional updates on current white collar and compliance topics. White Collar Briefly, a Perkins Coie mini pod, copyright 2020 by Perkins Coie LLP. Thank you for listening.